Thank you. Good afternoon. Welcome to your North Carolina Court of Appeals. My name is Judge Chris Dill, and I'll be presiding today. To my right is Judge Richard Dietz. To my left is Judge Lucy Inman. And we, we thank Eddie Sanders, our clerk today, and, and Mr. Rimlard is our marshal today. We have two cases on the calendar today. The first is a criminal case, State v. Wilkins. And if the appellant is ready, you may proceed. And tell me if you want to um, reserve some time Watch the clock, but I don't hold you to it if we start firing questions at you. I'll, I'll, I may show a little grace depending on what you need. Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> Good afternoon. May it please the court, I'm Assistant Appellate Defender Wyatt Orsman, and I represent Mr. Wilkins, the appellant in this case. I'd like to reserve seven minutes for rebuttal to okay. answer your question. One of the most basic rights in our criminal justice system is that a defendant cannot be tried, convicted, sentenced, or punished if that defendant is incompetent. That right is protected by statute, section 15A-1002, which provides that a defendant's competency may be, may be questioned at any time during the criminal proceedings by virtually anyone involved. And that once the defendant's competency has been questioned, the trial court shall hold a hearing to resolve the issue. The statute further specifies that if a forensic evaluation is ordered, the trial court shall hold the hearing after the evaluation is conducted. I want to make sure I understand where the state of the case law is now. It seems like that if you order an evaluation and the evaluation comes back, he's competent but the, the court never holds a hearing, but it's never raised. There's case law that says then it's waived. Is that correct? Am I right about that? Is that what State v. Dallas, or Dollar, State v. Dollar says, or am I wrong about that? Right, so that's, that's the trial court's, or excuse me, the Supreme Court's holding in Dollar, and that's also what the Supreme Court held in Badgett. But in this case, there was never an evaluation that was done. Is that there was never an evaluation done, or at least there's nothing in the record to indicate that. And there's no done. case that talks about a circumstance where, you, where, you, where, you, where an evaluation is ordered but never done, and then not brought up at trial. Well, no, that's, that's this court's opinion in Terrence, uh, the, the unpublished case. Yep. That, that the parties discuss in their briefs. Uh, in, in that case, just like this case, there was, there was um, a competency evaluation ordered. The, the state was required to transport the defendant to the state hospital. So you're not asking for a new trial. You're asking for us to send it back so that an evaluation can be done to determine whether or not he was, he, he was competent at trial, as they did in Tar Terrence. Is that correct? That's what they did, isn't it? Well, uh, actually, I am asking you to send it back for a new trial uh, based on the Supreme Court's uh, holding in sides, uh, quoting the Dusky case from the U.S. Supreme Court. Dusky says, look, what you should do if you, if you, if you find that there should have been, you know, that the, that the defendant's competency was in question, there should have been an evaluation and a hearing and a determination. So you, you, you need to send it back. Why does the, the examination why would that matter for the present, whether there's a preservation requirement or not? Like why, why is, you know, what, why would there be a preservation requirement in some cases and not others? Just as a matter of reasoning. Because under the language of the statute, that's what triggers the, the trial court's duty to, con to conduct 
a competency hearing and to make a competency Does the duty go away just because he was, had been evaluated and determined to be competent, but there's still, so that, does that take away the duty, the statutory duty, so, or it's waived? I mean, I guess well, so I, I mean, I, I think the dollar case and the budget case are, are factually distinguishable from this case because there, there, there was no questioning of the defendant's competency at all during the, uh, during any of the proceedings at the trial court level, right? The, the first time competency was ever mentioned was on appeal. But usually the reason we have a preservation requirement is because uh, there's some potential error at the in the trial court and, uh, you know, we look at it as a matter of policy and say, if that error is raised at the time, it's tremendous value to judicial economy to point it out to the trial court so the trial court can correct the error. And this seems to be the type of case where, you know, if, you know, someone had just brought to the court's attention, do, you know, we need to do something here, we wouldn't be in this scenario. And so it seems to fall into that category. And then we look and there are cases that have imposed that preservation requirement. So I'm just trying to understand why we would look and say, well, we're gonna, draw, we're gonna create these two different categories then, which se seems to me like it could cause a lot of confusion in, in the trial courts about what's going well, on. Well, yes, yeah, so I, I, think, I think the case law was a little bit muddled, but it isn't any longer, not after sides. And from, from sides, I mean, it, you know, the my understanding of one of the holdings of sides, of sides is that if a criminal defendant's mental competence is in question, then that criminal defendant can't voluntarily waive a right. Yes, that's, that, that, that's exactly right. I mean, under, uh, you know, sides was discussing sort of the, the intersection between waiver and competence um, and in the due process arena, but the reasoning is exactly the same under the statute, right? It's, it's impossible to say that a defendant who's, whose competency has been judicially determined to be in question, right, can, can knowingly and voluntarily relinquish, relinquish the right to that hearing to determine his competency. And in the dollar case and other cases where there was an, there was an evaluation and the evaluation resulted in uh, a doctor saying this person is competent? Correct. Is, that's what distinguishes this case from Dollar, is that correct? I, I see two, two distinctions between this case and Dollar. Uh, the, the Supreme Court's decision in Young I, also fits in that same bucket with Dollar. The defendants in both those cases asked for an evaluation. They got in an evaluation, and the evaluator's reports said that they were competent to stand trial, right? That was the medical opinion of the experts. So it at least makes some sense in Dollar and Young to say that they waived the statutory right to, to a competency hearing because they knew what the evidence was, right? They, they received the medical reports, it said they were competent. They knew that the evidence that was going to be presented at a competency hearing would support a finding that they were competent, right? So in, in, in that context, I think it makes sense to find waiver because they just chose to forego a hearing that they knew the, what the outcome would be. But that's very different than what we have here because there was no competency about it. We that. often see cases where um, 
the medical professional says something in a report like, I think at this time, the defendant can stand trial, but you know, we need to have further examination closer to trial because the stresses of the trial and so on and so forth, you know, we see that all the time in the reports. So again, kind of getting back to my question, if based on what you've said, though, it's not clear to me why you would say there's a preservation requirement there because you've still got this concept that if there's any indication to the trial court that there's, a, again, a competency question, the court should do something and there's no need to preserve that. Yet the case law says you can waive it in that situation. So what, I'm just trying to understand the logic of having. Right, so I, I think the way that the statute is written and the way it's been interpreted, uh, particularly by this court and, and Myrick and in Terrence, once a defendant's competency has been put in question, right, uh, by a motion, like in this case, there was a finding that it was, that it was in question by, um, by Judge Hardin. Once it's been put in question, the hearing is mandatory. It's mandatory. And under the reasoning of sides, we now know that, that's, that that mandatory hearing cannot be waived because someone who is, whose, whose competency is in question can't voluntarily relinquish the, the right to the hearing to determine their very competency. Right? It's, 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 it's a logical fallacy. I mean, to, to, to use Side's metaphor, it puts the cart before the horse. What's the standard? I'm just, because I've, I've got to go back and read Side's, but you have here that where there is substantial evidence that the defendant was incompetent, the trial court error, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Is it, there has to be substantial evidence that the defendant was incompetent? or just that, that, that somebody filed a motion questioning his, his competence? Do, do, so, does, so does, it, does there need to be evidence that before us that shows that there was, because I don't, I don't see anything except that the, the affidavit the attorney filed from two and a half years earlier in the trial court judge ordered. The, no, so. The, um, so what's the standard in sides? So the sides dealt with whether the defendant in that case had a due process right to a competency hearing. The, the standard for whether, for, for what triggers the right under, under due process is whether there is a bona fide doubt about the defendant's competency or a substantial evidence that the defendant may not be incompetent. That's the constitutional. But that's, that's the constitutional standard, right? That's the, that is the, that's the floor. The statute is the, right, is, is the ceiling. But the floor can be waived. No, the floor, can, the floor may can not be waived. waived. No. And, and under sides, the logic in sides, the, the statutory right to a hearing can't be waived once it's been triggered. And under the statute, it's, did anyone involved in the criminal proceedings question the defendant's competence? Under the Constitution. It's not, it, go ahead, well, I'm sorry. Under the Constitution, when are you entitled to a hearing if there's substantial evidence before the trial court that the defendant may be? I'm sorry, can you? What, can, what, 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 what triggers the constitutional right to a hearing under due process? Substantial evidence that the defendant was incompetent. You think there was substantial evidence here that at trial the defendant was incompetent? I don't think it matters. This, this isn't, I'm not raising a, a constitutional argument. Okay. I'm, I'm raising a, an argument under the statute. Which is different. Yes, okay. yes. So, so I, the, 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 the framework. So sides doesn't apply. Sides, sides reasoning applied because it talks about the intersection of waiver and a defendant's competency. 
But, but Sides was discussing it in the context of a due process argument. But if you overlay the, the framework, it's the same, right? If, if the, if the, def, if the trial court had held a hearing, a due process hearing in Sides, it would have been based on the procedure set out in Section 15A-1000. But to apply sides, wouldn't you have to say that there was substantial evidence that he was incompetent at trial to waive the statutory right to hearing, which there was none? Because you're just saying that there was this motion filed two and a half years earlier. If I'm going to make it apples to apples, and you're saying there's this analogous, maybe I'm just misunderstanding it, but sides said there had to be a substantial evidence the defendant was incompetent at trial. Therefore, he couldn't waive it. Sides says that any time a defendant's competence is in question, okay. whether, it's, whether it's under the constitutional standard or whether it's under the statutory standard, once that right to a competency hearing has been triggered, it can't be waived, right? That's, right, that's what the U.S. Supreme Court said in Pate. That's what the U.S. Supreme Court reaffirmed in Medina. That's what this court held in Myrick. That's what this court held in, in, in Terrence, right? Once, once that right to a statutory hearing has been triggered, it can't be waived. You talked about the constitutional issue being the floor, and I think you talked about the statute being the ceiling. I don't know if I would call the constitutional the basement and the statute being the first level, because there's always aspirational things that sure. states can do. But just to be clear, um, is it your position that the statute provides any greater protection than the constitutional right? I, I believe this, the statute was created to protect the constitutional right to a, a competency determination. And I, I think this may be getting at, at Judge Gillen's question as well, coming at it from a different angle. But under, under th there has to be a more of a showing for the constitutional standard, right? A, a, a bona fide doubt. But under the statute, all there has to be is, was the defendant's competency questioned? So does the statute provide a greater protection for Mr. Wilkins in this case because of your contention that it doesn't require that substantial evidence? I think the overlay of the, of the two frameworks are the same. I, th I think it makes it easier to, to trigger the statutory process because the, the, the threshold is lower. And is that a greater protection for Mr. Wilkins in this case? It would, I, su I suppose so. If you, I mean, if you, if you think about sort of it, it being easier to trigger the statutory mechanisms, right, for, to, to, to trigger the process and the proceedings under the statute. But, I mean, e even under the Constitution, e if there was to be a hearing, you know, under the constitutional standard of bona fide doubt, the hearing would have been held under the same statutory proceedings, right? I mean, 15A-1002 covers, I mean, covers constitutional due process arguments about competency as well, right? I mean, it, it would have just fed into the statute in, in sides, for example. And is it your position that Judge Harden's order in and of itself um, 
satisfies the statutory threshold that requires a hearing? I would, I would move one step back, actually. The, under, under Section 15A-102B, I believe, one, it says, <clears throat> it says once the defendant's competency has been questioned, the trial court shall hold a hearing. But so, it's, so it's not, right, it's, 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 once, it's once defense counsel filed that motion saying, you know, I, I have reasons to request a, a competency evaluation. At that point, that's, he, uh, Mr. Wilkins was entitled to a, some sort of competency determination. But you're really saying that any time there's a motion filed, regardless of whether the trial court here, like Judge Harden, has ordered the competency evaluation, you're saying that just once the motion is filed, that the statute's triggered and that the defendant is presumptively incompetent and unable to waive the hearing? I think that's my aspirational position you were talking okay, about that earlier. Well, I, 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 think at the, I think at the very least, you know, so where this, Miss Judge Hardin's finding based on the unopposed motion, I, I think that's as far back as this, this court needs to go. I think it could go back as far as the motion, but there was a, I mean, there was a judicial de determination after a hearing that Mr. Wilkins' competence was in question, right? The, the Judge Hardin found that his, his competence was in question. He's in, I mean, under, the, under the plain language of the statute, the trial court shall hold a hearing. So in that sense, that statutory interpretation, what you've just said, it really is independent of the constitutional analysis, other than when we're talking about the preservation issue. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm borrowing for sides because, because of its reasoning regarding how, how waiver intersects with, with competency in, in general. Now, I anticipate that counsel for the state is going to argue that sides is completely irrelevant to this analysis, since I don't think sides is cited in the state's brief at all. Do you anticipate that argument? And if you do, what would your response be? <laughs> my, my response would, would be that, that yes, sides was addressing the due process right to a competency hearing. But the court made no statement explicitly and nothing in its reasoning says what we hold here today about waiver only applies to the constitutional question. If there was no statute in this case, could you be making a due process argument in this case that there was a due process violation? I mean, and the re I think you know where I'm going with this, is that, it, you know, so one argument could be that the, the preservation argument doesn't apply as strongly when you're looking at the statute because the underlying premise that we have talked about here of, you know, you can't, if you are incompetent, of course, you can't have a knowing and voluntary waiver of any rights. So, but 
if you meet the constitutional minimum and then you're just examining whether there's the statutory mandate, you don't seem to be, have that same pr problem. So, you know, is that maybe the, the issue with sides here that, of what we might hear from your friend for the state? I think, I think the problem with coming at it from that position <laughs> is that we, we can't know in this case because at least the beginning of the statutory process was started by defense counsel, right? Um, there, was, there was no evaluation done. There was no evidentiary hearing. There was no medical evidence developed, right? So by pursuing the statutory route, right, right, assuming that right, he would get the evaluation and he would get the hearing, there was no development of the evidence that might have uh, supported a constitutional claim, right? So, so by by following the procedures and asking for a for an evaluation, right? That the record isn't developed like like it would be ideally. But I think, but I would. Um, it's also important to remember that at the hearing that Judge Hardin held, you know, on the motion for an evaluation. I mean, there were defense counsel made made reasonable, genuine claims, right? Um, he's not understanding his situation. He's speaking in elevated tones. Uh, he, um, you know, he, he's having rapid mood swings. You know, I I, I think that's color, colorable evidence, even under a due process argument. I think it's also important to remember. Uh, de defense counsel's statement in, in the hearing that in addition to his own concerns about Mr. Wilkins, the, the jail personnel asked that he be evaluated because they had concerns based on their observations of him in their, in his custody, in their custody. Um, so, right, I mean, so this is, I, so I, I mean, I, I think there, I think there is g genuine evidence. I mean, if, if, I, if I'm being pressed on that issue, I mean, I think there's colorable evidence that, you know, would require the trial court to conduct some sort of hearing to, to, uh, enough to trigger the duty, whether it's under the statute or under the Constitution, to, to, to get Mr. Wilkins evaluated. Do you think that's significant in this case that you don't have just a naked motion by defense counsel that's maybe supported by the affidavit of defense counsel, that you have some third parties who've said they question the defendants. Do you think that's significant for this panel's analysis in this case? I do because I mean, it, they, the defense counsel isn't with Mr. Wilkins all the time. Like the prison, um, I mean, remember he's, he's, he's in state custody this whole time. He hasn't made bail. So, right, he's, he's in jail. Who's with them 24 hours a day? The jail personnel. They're, right, they are one of the groups, right, in addition to the defense counsel, who asked for him to be evaluated. I think it's also important to, to note that the defense, um, excuse me, the, the district attorney, he was served with the motion. He was present at the hearing. He did not contest the motion, right? He, he heard everything defense counsel said in that hearing and didn't oppose a word of it. So one last question about something Judge Dillon asked, but so you think 
there could be no retrospective examination in this case. Mm. Did I hear you say that? So, I, mean, I, 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 I jump to the end of the framework on that, on that issue. Under Dusky and Sides, the framework says, look, you got to send it back for the trial court to determine whether a, a retrospective competency hearing can be held um, or if there should be a new trial. But Dusky, quoted by Sides, says, when, the, when, a, when a retrospective competency hearing can't be held within a year of the trial, that's not the way to go. That's not appropriate. You should just give, you should just order a new trial. So, so I, I, I think that's the appropriate remedy here. I mean, if, if this, if the judge, if, if this court is so inclined, I mean, f right, feel free to, feel free as if I'm telling you to do your job. But, right, I mean, you can, right, I mean, you, you have both those options. I think the correct one is to send it back for a new trial. Rather than to send it back to the trial court to decide whether or not it can conduct a retrospective hearing. Correct. Okay. Thank you. You're getting into your... Yeah, I'll, you still have seven minutes if you want to sit down now. Sure, sure. Can I say one more thing sure. before, before I sit down? And I think, I think it's worth me eating up a, a, just a couple of minutes. The state's waiver argument should fail for another more equitable reason. I think it's important, it's important to remember that Mr. Wilkins was in state custody at the time Judge Hardin entered his order. Judge Hardin ordered the state to transport Mr. Wilkins to Butner to be evaluated. The record shows that for whatever reason, the state didn't take him to Butner. The state took him to Central Prison instead, where he was permitted to get out on bail. The reason why the statutory process for determining Mr. Wilkins' competency wasn't completed was because the state didn't comply with Judge Hardin's order. The state shouldn't be heard to complain about Mr. Wilkins' failure to request a competency hearing when it's the, when it's the state's noncompliance that caused that hearing to not be conducted in the first place. The state can't interrupt, the state can't interrupt the mandatory procedure for determining Mr. Wilkins' competence and then complain that he did not ensure that the process was completed. And if there are no other questions, I'll save the rest of my time. Thank you. You'll still have about five and a half minutes when you back up. Thank you, Your Honor. Good afternoon. My name, and may it please the court, my name is Keith Clayton from the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this matter. And to your earlier questions, I will be briefly discussing sides, um, but don't want to get ahead of myself just yet. So, um, as we've been discussing, defendant argues here that he's entitled to a new trial because the trial court below did not conduct a competency hearing and make competency findings before proceeding with his trial. 
And defendant, of course, bases this argument upon 15A1002 and the procedures set forth therein, which require the court to conduct a hearing once a defendant's competency has been placed in question. But, as has already been discussed as well, defendant's argument entirely disregards two important factors. One, uh, the fact that our Supreme Court and this court have consistently held that a defendant waives his statutory right uh, to a competency hearing by failing to assert it in an apt time or by engaging in conduct inconsistent with a purpose to insist upon it. And second, defendant's argument completely ignores the fact that after requesting the hearing in March of 2018, he never again made any representation to the trial court that there may be a question as to his competency before the trial in July of 2021. So can you, here, can you please just remind us of in that time frame, did he have the same counsel? So according to the record, uh, defendant was represented um, by appointed counsel at this hearing where, or where he requested you know, the competency hearing. And where Judge Harden found that it yes, was a question. Yes, Your Honor. And then two years, or I mean a year later, there were two separate plea hearings where the state offered pleas to defendant and defendant, still represented by the same counsel, Attorney Siegley, um, declined you know, to accept the state's plea offer, entered a plea of not guilty. Um, but at neither of those two hearings um, did defendant's counsel, who was the counsel present when Judge Harden entered the order, uh, did, he didn't raise uh, the issue again or the, lack of, the fact that there hadn't been an examination uh, or a hearing at either of those two subsequent plea hearings, um, both of which were, I think, in March and May of 2019. And is it your argument that because counsel rejected those plea offers, that in and of itself is some indicia that the defendant was competent? Um, well, there's other statutory law that says you can't enter a plea unless a defendant is deemed competent, obviously. But um, but this was rejecting a plea. Right, right. right. So that um, wouldn't matter. And so, no, I'm not necessarily suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that because counsel appeared and rejected the state's plea offer and entered a plea, that that is indicia of his competence. What I'm suggesting is that is yet another opportunity where defendant through counsel is appearing before the court and could have raised the issue that, you know, hey, this, this evaluation was ordered roughly a year ago and it hasn't happened yet. And we need to, you know, make sure that that does happen so we can come back and have a hearing on defendant's competency. Would you say that was ineffective assistance of counsel? I don't think it raises to the level of ineffective assistance, no ma'am. Because other than that lawyer, right, who's going who's, who's, who would, to, who would bring this to the court's attention? I guess the prosecutor? Um, well, you know, as has been noted, anyone, uh, you know, can bring the issue before the court. Um, but I don't, I don't know that it, it rises to sort of the Strickland level of yeah, ineffective assistance. Just asking. You know, yeah. but, I mean, it's, it's a fair question. I don't know. The record doesn't reflect how often Mr. Siegley spoke with his client, you know, between the initial hearing and the plea hearings a year later. Uh, we simply don't have that in the record, so I can't speculate on that. If, if we accepted the argument that, that it is possible to waive this issue, and we said there's a waiver, you could have an ineffective assistance claim there, though, right? Just in the, of the general fact that counsel, because if counsel, if the 
uh, if Wilkins could show that, uh, you know, by getting some experts, that he would have been found incompetent and that had the argument been made, but it wasn't made, it was waived, I mean, it, that would meet the two prongs of ineffective assistance, right? Um, I certainly so can't it, argue that it wouldn't. Which is sort of another protection. If we did think that there should be a waiver requirement here, it, it doesn't mean there's no remedy if it turns out there should have been a hearing. So, uh, but getting back to the, the question of, so it, ordinarily we have this law that says when there's a statutory mandate, you can't waive it. It's been around for a very long time. And I gather that the reason that we have that principle is that if the legislature says to a trial court, if, you know, X happens, you must do Y. There's no requirement for the, uh, for counsel to stand up and say, Your Honor, you know, just a reminder, you have to do Y, that we expect the court to know the law and if it's required to, do, to act in some way to do it. So uh, I'm trying to square that with uh, this case law that says you can waive this because to me this statute seems like the sort of the paradigm of the statutory mandate that would never be waivable. So... Do you have an explanation for why that, what was the legal, the reasoning behind saying that you can't have this waiver, um, at least in some of the cases? Um, well, my answer to that um, is that, you know, after the statute was enacted in, I believe, 1973, um, you know, this issue has been brought before our Supreme Court several times, been discussed, Young, King, Badgett, Dollar, Gaten, well, Gaten was before the statute, but... Um, and in each of those instances, because the defendant there, you know, didn't raise the issue before trial, in other words, it had maybe been raised in pretrial hearings or at some time in pretrial proceedings, but because it wasn't ra uh, raised before trial, then our Supreme Court has held, you know, that that operates as a waiver uh, on defendant's behalf to the competency hearing that you know, had previously been requested and ordered uh, in accordance with the statute. Um, you know, this court has also in State v. Blanchard and State v. Good has recognized, you know, that waiver and, and the case law on waiver from our Supreme Court that's been around for over 40 years now and has applied that in, in prior cases. Um, but, you know, beyond the Supreme Court simply finding that you know, kind of abandoning that right, as defendant did here. I mean, defendant asked for the hearing in March of 2018. He had two plea hearings in the meantime, and then trial doesn't occur until almost three years later in uh, July of 2021. And there's no issue raised, um, not only in those hearings, but at trial. I mean, this, it wasn't raised by anyone before trial, during trial, during the motion to dismiss, during the sentencing hearing, during the habitual felon plea. And defendant didn't object to the trial court proceeding without one. And so, in my view, defendant abandoned this claim that he made in 2018 that he may not have been competent to stand trial. And that, again, has been recognized, you know, as a waiver of the statutory mandate by our Supreme Court and by this court, again, for almost a half a century now. What if we held that to try to square sides with this case law? What if we held that if there's a due process issue, it can't be waived? But if it's just the statutory procedure, that's waivable if not raised? What, yeah, I think what's that's right. That? I, I, and I think that's what sides held. Um, let, me just, let me just jump ahead to what I had prepared to discuss about sides. 
Um, you know, State v. Sides, despite the argument to the contrary, has not undermined the viability of the precedents of Young, King, Badgett, uh, and Dollar, or this court's precedents in, uh, in Blancher and Good. And contrary to defendants' characterization of Sides, the court there explicitly declined to address the statutory waiver issue, uh, uh, statutory waiver argument uh, presented in that case. Um, and in fact, acknowledging the continuing viability of Young, King, and Badgett, the court stated in dicta uh, that the state's argument regarding waiver of the statutory right was consistent with those prior cases and was arguably correct. And if I may, I'll read you the exact language from uh, 457 and 458 of the reporter. Quote, we need not resolve the party's dispute regarding the preservation issue, even assuming arguendo that the state is correct, that defendant failed to preserve her statutory right to a competency hearing as required under our prior decisions, we hold that the defendant possessed a constitutional due process right to such a hearing, unquote. And so to your point, yeah, if there is substantial evidence before the court that would give rise to a bona fide doubt, um, that triggers the requirement that the court hold a hearing sua sponte. And that's what happened inside, and that's sort of the, you know, that's the implication in Drope and Pate and other you know, United States Supreme Court cases on this issue as well. But the fact that decides, you know, that the Supreme Court incides sort of set the statutory argument aside and, and elected not to uh, engage that argument, I mean, that, that sort of undermines defendants' uh, contention here that sides, you know, strongly supports his statutory argument. I mean, again, to quote the case, Insides, um, the majority opinion says, quote, the sole question that we must decide is whether there was substantial evidence before this court to trigger the need for a sua sponte competency hearing, unquote. And thus, the court's opinion rested entirely on that constitutional due process analysis, which, as noted in the state's brief and as we've discussed today, uh, was not raised by a defendant here. And I disagree that with the representation um, that Mr. Orsbaum made that we do have sufficient evidence here that would trigger, uh, you know, that would give rise to a substantial doubt that, um, that, you know, that there's bona fide doubt, substantial evidence, I'm sorry, that would give rise to a bona fide doubt as to defendant's competency here. The, comp uh, the defendant engaged in numerous colloquies with the court during his plea hearing. You know, he explicitly stated that he, he fully understood what was, you know, going on and the nature and the object of the proceedings against him. Um, he offered no other uh, evidence of uh, mental health history, no medical evidence that would seem to suggest that he had a prior mental health issue uh, as well. And so there was simply no evidence before the trial court that would give rise to that bona fide doubt. Do you think that, just sort of, um, if Judge Hardin had said, instead of ordering an evaluation, if George, Judge Hardin, and it's my understanding that everyone is in agreement that for the statutory process, substantial evidence isn't required. So I can kind of guess why Judge Hart didn't ask for this. Um, but by the very virtue of the fact that Judge Harden ordered the evaluation without any further presentation of evidence, when would the defendant's next opportunity be to present evidence? Uh, before trial. And would that be by his counsel requesting, his counsel coming back to court and say, hey, he was ordered to go to Butner, 
which by the way is a lot closer to where I think he was in court than central, maybe it's equidistance, but um, um, hey, this didn't happen and you need to make it happen. Um, that's right. when he could have developed that evidence. Right. Um, you know, defendant would have the opportunity um, to raise that issue before trial. And certainly if the court overruled, you know, or declined to grant that relief, he could object to the trial court proceeding without one and preserve the issue for appeal. What's one other thing. What's your response to, I'm sorry to interrupt you, what's no. your response to the equitable argument that when the state itself is the cause of the statute not being complied with, it can't argue waiver. So the statute doesn't place uh, the burden on any of the parties. The state, you know, the state didn't raise the issue. Defendant raised it. Um, but the state doesn't necessarily sort of automatically assume the burden to see that through, nor does the court uh, take on the burden to just sort of ensure um, that the parties are, you know, that everyone's okay and, and that they need to, uh, if the defendant makes no mention of it and doesn't raise it, that the court still must engage in a competency hearing. But I want to clarify something else that was stated in the earlier argument. I mean, here, defendant was in custody um, because he threatened a corrections officer in the county jail. That's kind of what led to the motion to begin with. But, but setting that aside, after defendant was transferred to central prison, which I realize is not Butner, uh, but he was actually bonded out eight days later. So he wasn't in the state's custody for very long. And perhaps the state could have gotten around to him. I don't know, frankly, you know, what the resources and, and volumes are there. But in any event, you know, he's bonded out on March 21, 2018. And thus, defendant himself had ample time, ample opportunity to obtain an evaluation and then to act upon that report, competent or incompetent, as appropriate. Uh, and again, multiple opportunities to raise the issue before the trial court. So I, I don't think that argument is very, very persuasive. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention uh, regarding uh, the discussion of sides today, um, defendant's contention that sides requires a statutory hearing in every instance where the defendant's competence is placed in question, uh, frankly, it misconstrues the holding in sides. Uh, further, in, in arguing that he couldn't, that defendant here couldn't possibly have waived his right to a competency hearing uh, voluntarily unless he was first deemed competent, um, places significant emphasis upon a proposition in sides that is not at play here. Um, that, quote, competency is a necessary predicate to voluntariness. And the reason that that's not in play here is that the, the sides court was clear uh, in, in putting more context around that statement by its own language. Sides stated that this proposition, competency is necessary predicate to voluntariness, this proposition only applies in circumstances where there is, quote, substantial evidence before the trial court that a defendant may lack the capacity to stand trial, unquote. So it's not a blanket representation that any time uh, a hearing is, you know, ordered under the statute that it, you know, that a hearing must happen. I mean, again, sides didn't do anything 
And its own language, you know, confirms this, to, to undermine the viability of Young, King, Badgett, and other cases. Um, frankly, it, it allows those cases to coexist in harmony because this, this competency predicate, uh, predicate to voluntariness concept is only triggered, again, where there's substantial evidence uh, before the court that the defendant may lack that capacity. And that's, of course, the due process, uh, the constitutional due process grounds um, that, again, haven't been raised here and, frankly, the state doesn't believe could have been raised here based on the lack of evidence before the court uh, and defendant's demeanor. And again, one, one other distinction with sides, the, the core issue there involved the constitutional due process right to be present at trial and whether the defendant waived her right to be present through intentional self-harm and whether that self-harm could have been deemed voluntary where, again, a bona fide doubt as to the defendant's competency existed in that case, at least according to the majority. So in contrast to sides, again, the issue here isn't whether the defendant lacked the capacity to voluntarily waive his right to be present, um, which, is a, which is an important distinction, but it's whether the defendant frankly abandoned his assertion uh, made three years earlier that he lacked the capacity to stand trial. And so again, uh, despite the holding in sides, Dollar, Young, Badgett, King, all, all remain good law and nothing in sides disturbs the viability of those cases. And I want to speak to the other two cases mentioned by defendant here, uh, Terrence and Myrick, if I may please. Um, regarding Terrence, in, in glossing over the statutory waiver issue, defendant is also asking this court to give more weight to a prior unpublished opinion and to a long line of published opinions of our Supreme Court. Again, going from Gayton, Dollar, Young, King, Badgett, and published opinions of this court, Blanchard and Good. And, and this is not a novel case with respect to sort of the statutory right to a hearing and, and waiver. This, is, this has come up numerous times in our case law. And it's well settled that a failure to assert a competency issue at trial and, and or acting in a manner inconsistent with the purpose uh, to insist upon that hearing operates as a waiver of that statutory right. But additionally, beyond its unpublished status, there are several other problems with defendants' insistence that Terrence is, quote, manifestly superior to any published opinion on this issue, unquote. And so specifically in Terrence, which, by the way, contains roughly one printed page of analysis, um, there is no analysis or discussion of our Supreme Court holdings in Young and King and Badgett or this court's holdings in Good and Blanchard uh, in support of the Terrence panel's holding. And again, the Terrence panel expressly declined to discuss the statutory waiver issue at all. But more importantly, perhaps, in contrast to this instant case, the defendant there wrote numerous letters to the trial court regarding his mental state both before and after the entry of that hearing order. And so, as such, the defendant there in Terrence did not engage in conduct inconsistent with a purpose to insist upon a statutory hearing, quite, quite the, obvious, or the opposite. But, but that's very different than the facts of this case, where we have three years passing, and you know, I'll, I'll characterize it as defendant's abandonment and thus his waiver of this statutory right. You know, there in Terrence, um, the defendant continued to give the court reason uh, to doubt his competency, and so that's not inconsistent with a purpose to insist upon it. Um, but based on those factors, Terrence offers no guidance in addressing the waiver of a statutory right to a hearing, which again has been consistently recognized by our Supreme Court and is of little or no value in analyzing the question whether defendant here waived that statutory right to a hearing. Returning to Myrick, in Myrick, a competency examination and hearing were actually held in that case. 
However, the trial court did fail to make findings of fact regarding the defendant's competency and accepted a, a negotiated plea of not guilty by reason of insanity instead. But the issue there was whether the defendant's attorney lacked the authority to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity on behalf of the defendant under those circumstances. Specifically, the court in Myrick observed that 15A1002 subparagraph B1 explicitly states that, quote, the parties may not stipulate that the defendant lacks the capacity to proceed, unquote. That's at paragraph 13. And the court went on to say at paragraph 15, thus entering the not guilty by reason of insanity plea without a competency determination violated defendant's right to due process. So again, that's, that's just completely different than the instant case and the facts that we have here. And so the issue, again, of waiver and the statutory right to a hearing wasn't in controversy in Myrick. And its facts are, are, again, strikingly different from those of the instant case. And, and finally, you know, just sort of as a, a practical matter, defendant has failed to preserve this argument for appeal in the first place. As our Supreme Court has stated in King, Young, and other cases, quote, to assert constitutional or statutory right in the appellate courts, the right must have been asserted and the issue raised before the trial court. Further, it must affirmatively appear on the record that the issue was passed upon by the trial court, unquote. Because the defendant did not raise the competency hearing issue below, it's really, he may not raise this issue for the first time now on appeal. Um, if there are no further questions regarding that, I'd like to turn to defendant's plain error argument with the time I have left. Uh, turning to that second argument, defendant contends that the outcome at trial would have been different had testimony regarding his silence not been admitted here. But because defendant did not object to that evidence in the trial court below, he may only argue plain error now on appeal. And the plain error standard of review, as this court well knows, it's a high burden for a defendant. A defendant must show that a fundamental error occurred at trial, meaning that upon examination of the entire record, the error had a probable impact on the jury's finding defendant guilty. If there was no Fifth Amendment, just imagine it, it doesn't exist, and then this occurred at a trial, is there any evidentiary objection that could be made to questioning a criminal defendant about the decision to remain silent or anything else that might be covered by the right against self-incrimination? If there were no Fifth Amendment? Yeah, if there wasn't a Fifth Because I, I can't think of it. I don't believe so, Your Honor. So I guess my question is, why, is, if, if the only basis, conceivable basis here, that this would be inadmissible is the constitutional ground, why doesn't the general, we, and we have all this case law that says you just can't use plain error with constitutional arguments. Why aren't we, why would we be applying the evidentiary principles for plain error and not the constitutional ones? Um, and the reason I say this is there seems to be a tremendous amount of confusion in our case law about which constitutional issues that arise in the context of evidence are subject to plain error review. Well. Your Honor, as, as I argued in my brief, I, I think, you know, the state is of the position that the failure to raise the constitutional issue below does operate as a waiver. Of course, we do have Rule 10A4. We do have the plain error rule, and it does apply to evidentiary matters. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm inclined to address that on appeal, but I agree. Uh, in the first instance, frankly, the constitutional issue that wasn't raised in the trial court below ought not be regarded as preserved for this court. I mean, there's certainly, the, you cite it, there's case law that says plain error review does not apply to constitutional arguments. But 
there are cases from this court where there's an evidentiary issue. So it's cases like this one. It's, it's things that involve the right against self-incrimination and other constitutional arguments that are also have a, um, an admissibility dimension, you know, confrontation clause things as well. And so uh, I'm just trying to figure out whether this is the case where we might try to provide a rule that harmonizes all of these cases. Um, well, I mean, I think I think uh, it, it's possible. I'm sorry to be stammering here, but you know, I'm I'm sort of inclined to just sort of analyze this case through the rubric of plain error and explain to you all this court why plain error should not you know, hasn't occurred in this case. Based on, the, based on the precedents that have applied that yes, analysis to cases. Yes, Your Honor. Let's talk Just about like that rubric. Do you have to have error for there to be plain error? In other words, does the trial court have to commit an error? And what I'm getting at is if clearly, I mean, often inadmissible evidence comes in all the time that the other side doesn't object to, but I don't think the trial court has a duty and every time somebody says, well, my mom told me blah, 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 if you, it's some hearsay statement, the judge has any duty to intervene, maybe it's an IAC claim. Um, so does the defendant have to show that the trial court had a duty to intervene, that there was error to begin with before you had plain error, or do you, you say that's not the case? Well, Because the uh, cases seem to be all over the place on this point. Well, again, as, as you mentioned, you know, the trial court isn't uh, in a position to second guess what might be strategic matters uh, that trial counsel incorporates during the course of the trial. You know, there are strategic reasons they may not object to what would otherwise be a valid error. Um, so and it's more appropriate to, to, for an issue like that to send it back for, or just without prejudice to conduct an MAR to determine whether or not the trial, if there was reasonable a reason not to object or whatever. I think that would be appropriate, but I don't think that's necessary here because, again, assuming that it was error, and let, let's just assume for the sake of argument that it was error to allow the state to elicit this testimony regarding his protected silence. The trial court erred by not intervening. Yeah, but it doesn't rise for the reasons I'd like to just explain with my last three minutes. It, it doesn't rise to the level of plain error. And so um, I, I think it's sort of a push. It, it's, 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 it's a non-issue. Um, so you're saying that if, if, if the defense counsel stood up and said, your Honor, I don't think the defense, the, the, the prosecutor in his closing argument should be able to talk about, hey, look, he didn't say anything when he was pulled over. He must be guilty. I mean, or unless, I mean he knew why he was there. That's why he never denied it. I mean, these statements. And the judge says, no, he can talk about that. That wouldn't be error, reversible error. That's if, he, if he had objected to it, if he had objected. If he had objected to it, okay. then we'd be looking at uh, harmless error. But then why wouldn't it be an IAC claim if, if he, so, you're telling me that there's no reason to send it back because if you'd objected to it, it wouldn't have made a difference anyway. And you just said it might have. If he had objected to it, the trial court made the wrong ruling. Well, if, if he objected, it would, the, the review, sort of the, the standard of review, would be harmless error rather than plain error. But for the same reasons, I, did, I don't think harmless error occurred. And so. But I think, let me try to help, because I've, I've heard Judge Dillon articulate this in an oral argument before, but I think the question he's getting at is, if there's a conceivable reason why counsel might not have made the objection, then isn't that more suitable for ineffective assistance review than for plain error review? 
because the court's not really making an error. The court may well be saying, uh, now I would object if I was that lawyer, but uh, you know, they are running their trial strategy here. Sure. Thank and, you for the clarification. Sure. I, yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. But we've uh, never, our cases have never carved out that exception, saying in these scenarios, these evidentiary scenarios where there might be reasons why no objection was made, that we shouldn't be in, in engaging in plain air, we should do ineffective assistance of counsel, which has a very similar standard. I mean, it still has the but for, you know, reasonable probability of a different outcome standard. Is the, is the defendant here arguing that the trial court erred in failing to intervene or arguing that the state relied on improper evidence? Um, and do I you believe, think there's a difference between the two? Uh, well, I believe he's arguing plain error that, you know, the, the trial court failed to intervene. Um, I, I guess I do think there's a difference between the two because of the argument that we were just having about strategy and whether that might ultimately go to ineffective assistance and maybe a different remedy of motion for appropriate relief. Um, I, 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 you, it looks like I'm not answering your question, but. Well, it's just there are different standards, right? Because for the, the standard for the trial court to intervene if there's an improper argument, it's different than the standard for the trial court to intervene if the trial court thinks there's inadmissible evidence. I see. Um, well, honestly, I, I, I don't think I can answer that question um, uh, clearly before you today, Your Honor. I'm just, I don't, I don't have that. Um, Got to fall on my sword. Um, apologies, and, and um, I see I'm out of take, time. You want to take a couple minutes, a minute or two to wrap sure. up? Sure. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, I just, I just want to emphasize that despite uh, Moore and despite Richardson, which have been briefed uh, in this matter, um, this court has found that even where three of the four Richardson factors weigh in defendant's favor, the court has found no plain error where substantial evidence of defendant's guilt is present. And I'm referring to State v. Thompson from 2019. And the state believes that substantial evidence was present uh, in this case um, and that that you know, significantly undermines the plain error argument. I think there are two, um, the two prongs, if you will, of Richardson that most significantly undermine defendant's plain error argument are that second substantial evidence factor. Here, the state's case in chief included over 30 exhibits regarding the drugs paraphernalia of the contraband found in the Jeep and tendered three witnesses corroborating defendants' possession of the illegal drugs at the scene. And this evidence was uncontroverted and substantial. Um, again, photos from the scene and the actual physical evidence of the two footballs packed with the suboxone marijuana, bath salts, et cetera, found in the vehicle. And, and that those, you know, that evidence was introduced and published to the jury and was substantial and overwhelming. And I don't think that you know, regarding the fourth prong, the emphasis and capitalization prong, that we have a, a circumstance here that is as severe as Richardson. It might not be as benign as Moore, but certainly not as severe as Richardson. In Richardson, the prosecutor there asked the defendant directly roughly 20 questions about his silence on, uh, on that defendant's cross-examination. And in contrast to the, to the instant case, the Court there in Richardson found that the prosecutor's cross-examination of the defendant impermissibly focused almost, about 20 seconds, okay, almost exclusively on defendant's failure to make a statement to investigating officers, and that's just not the case here. Um, on, on direct examination, uh, the state asked roughly six questions out of approximately 250 questions uh, lodged on direct of the three 
uh, officers, um, and, and those six questions uh, simply don't rise to the level of plain error. And even if they do, defendant elicited the exact same testimony on cross-examination. When it comes to Corporal Haley in particular, virtually the same question got the exact same answer, and thus any error uh, is invited error. And with that, I'll, I'll conclude, Your Honors. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> I want to make a couple of responses to the, some of the state's arguments. I want to be crystal clear. The statute, 15A-1002, it can be waived. It can be waived. But not all waiver is created equal. In Badgett and in King, the Supreme Court held that the statute was waived because the statute was never invoked. It wasn't raised until, until the defendants appealed. In Young and Dollar, the Supreme Court held it was waived because evaluations had been conducted, the evidence came back that they were competent, and the defendants simply didn't follow through on hearings when they knew what the, what the answer of those hearings would be. That is very different than what we have here. Let's be crystal clear about what the state is asking. The state is reading the statute to say that Mr. Wilkins and any other defendant after him not only has to ask for a competency hearing once, they now have to ask for it twice, right? I filed a motion that said, that said my client's competency is in question. The trial court found that to be true. And Mr. Wilkins has somehow waived his right, his statutory right, to the, to the hearing because he didn't ask for it a second time so I think, at trial. You know, the counter to that is, well, but this is precisely the kind of scenario where you'd want to have that preservation because the trial court is managing an enormous docket. Counsel for the defendant is representing the defendant. And so we'll put the burden on counsel to say to the court, don't go forward with the trial. You need to do the hearing that you still haven't done yet. And uh, ordinarily, if I looked at the statute, I would say this is a statutory mandate, no waiver at all. But the courts have said it can be waived. So I guess my question to you is, we heard from your friend for the state one way to harmonize sides with all this case law, which is that uh, it's not waivable if you meet the due process standard. Mm -hmm. But otherwise it is. So what, what's your take on that? My, my, my take on that is you all will obviously be spending quite a bit of time rereading sides. My reading of sides is that its reasoning applies in the due process context as well as in the statutory context. According to the state, the definition of competence is different under the statute than it is under due process because a defendant can't waive, can't waive a due process right, but somehow can be considered to waive a competency hearing under the statute. That makes no sense. 
right? The, the statute's definition of what, of what incompetence is, is the constitutional or is the legal definition of incompetence, right? If you can't, if you can't waive, if you can't waive a competency hearing under due process, you can't waive a competency hearing under the statute once the right has been triggered, right? That's the difference, right? That's the difference between this case and the first bucket of cases, Badgett and King, and the second bucket of cases of Young and Dollar. In all those cases, right, the, 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 the statute was never triggered in King and Badgett, but it was here. And, the stat, and in Young and Dollar, they got the evidence back. It said that they were going to, that the, the only evidence was that they were competent, so they didn't, have, they didn't push for a hearing. That's very, diff very different than what we have here, right? And in, in sides, the court decided not to address the statutory issue for exactly, right, sides falls in the same bucket as King and Badgett. The factual dispute is whether there was enough whether defense counsel said enough to actually trigger the statute. That's why the court decided not, right? I mean, that was, that was the dispute between the parties was, was the statute actually triggered? We don't have that question here. It was triggered, right? Defense counsel made the motion. Once that motion was filed, the founding was made that his, that his competency was in question. He's entitled to a hearing. And under side's logic, once someone is of questionable competency, whether it's under the statute or under due process, he can't waive it. It makes no sense to say someone who's not, who's not competent can waive anything. Um, I'll wrap up. I want to make a couple of points. The state wants this court to rewrite the statute to create an attenua attenuation exception. Um, right, it, it doesn't matter that it was three years. The statute says a, the, the court shall hold a hearing. Um, the state also mentioned that, there, that, the, that the statute doesn't put the burden on the state to follow through on the, on the statutory procedures. That may or may not be correct, but Judge Hardin did in his order. He said, Sheriff's Office, take him to Butner. They didn't. So you would put that responsibility on the court, not so much on the state? No, I would put it on the state because the state did not comply with Judge Horton's order. He made, I mean, one of his directives in the order was take him to Butner. He's in your custody now, take him to Butner. Does that clarify your, okay. Um, and then the only thing I wanna mention on the, the Fifth Amendment issue is constitutional questions can be can be addressed under the plain error standard, right? When when the constitutional question affects the admission or exclusion of evidence, plain error standard applies. If that's wrong, then our Supreme Court wrongly decided more, where they addressed this exact same argument under the plain error standard. Thank you. Thank you. We have one more case, but I think we're going to take like a, like we'll stand in recess for about three minutes because I think y'all need to get set up and give you a chance to switch.
We'll be back in five minutes. We'll do it five minutes.